faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So I'll give you a moment of that before we, uh, before we pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in peace. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We ask that you implant it deep in our souls, that we may live by it, that we may feast on it, and that we may be transformed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we're in a study of the covenants, and the word covenant is simply a fancy word for promise, for, you could say, commitment. And so covenant, there are four major covenants in the Bible, four biblical covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. And as we've seen, the covenants are part of the meta-narrative of history. They're part of the meta-narrative. Meta-narrative is, is this idea of the big story. They're part of the big story of the Bible. The covenants are part of God's roadmap for history, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. To say it more precisely, where He has had us, where he has us, and where he's taking us. The covenants are part of that roadmap of God's design for history. Right now we're studying the Davidic covenant. Let me refresh your memory as to what we've studied so far. The Davidic covenant is about rulership. It's about kingship. It is part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And you remember the Abrahamic covenant is comprised of three essential promises, land, seed, and blessing. And the Davidic covenant is the fulfillment of the seed part of the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12, 3, God promised to Abraham, in your families all the earth will be blessed. Elsewhere in Genesis, God promises that the nations, the families of the world, the world will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. There are a number of ways which God accomplishes this. Perhaps the the most visible way that we see this today is through the pages of the Bible that is in front of you right now or on your phone or on your, or on your, uh, your mobile app or your, your iPad. The pages of the Bible are perhaps the most visible way in which God blesses all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth, the entire world through the seed of Abraham. The reason I say that is because every book in the Bible is written by a Jew, except for Luke and Job. And Luke got much of his information, if not most of his information, from a Jew, from Paul. This is not an accident that every book in the Bible is written by a Jew, except for Job and perhaps, excuse me, except for for Luke and, and Job. But arguably, the most significant way in which we see the seed promise unfold, the most significant way in which we see how God blesses all the families of the world through Abraham is through the seed of the woman, which was prophesied back in Genesis 3.15, which we have seen on a number of occasions. The second Adam, the last Adam, which is the one who is prophesied in Genesis 3.15, would be a descendant of Abraham. He would not be an African man. He would not be an Asian man. He would not be a Germanic man. He would be a Semitic man, 
a descendant of Abraham, and he would rule the way God intended the first Adam to rule, in righteousness, in holiness, in communion, in union, in fellowship, in relationship with God, as God's image bearer, as God's designee, his agent, his royal representative. The second Adam, just by, this is just by way of review from what we've seen so far in the Davidic covenant. The second Adam would reclaim what the first Adam surrendered to Lucifer. What did the first Adam surrender to Lucifer? The right to rule. The right to rule humanity and the right to rule planet Earth. The first Adam surrendered both of those rights to the devil. This is why every human being that comes into the world is under the authority of the devil. Right? We're born into the devil's domain of darkness, his kingdom of darkness. And we continue in that kingdom until we get a new birth, John chapter 3, until we are born again. And of course, that Greek word as we have studied before, anothen, has also the meaning of from above. Until we're born again, which is to say we're born from above, until that happens, we are under the control. We're under the authority of the evil one until we are born again. And so, arguably, the greatest blessing that God gives to all of humanity, all the families of the earth, through Abraham, is the seed of the woman, the last Adam, who creates the path through which we can be born again. The last Adam who reclaims what the first Adam surrendered to Lucifer. Because the last Adam reclaims the right to rule humanity and the right, and the right to rule the planet. Now, of course, I should be clear that the devil's rulership over this world is subject to God's sovereignty. And it is the descendant of Abraham. The, the descendant above all the other descendants. The descendant of Abraham, Jesus, who will exhibit God's sovereignty and who will reclaim the right to rule for God. We saw last time that one of the reasons that God created humanity was to resolve the question raised by the devil's rebellion in eternity past, does God really have the right to rule? I mean, really. If angels rebelled against the one who claims to be omnipotent, against the one who claims to be all authority embodied in him, sovereign. If his creatures, angelic creatures, actually in the third heaven, in his abode, engaged in violence to try and seize his throne, and the anointed cherub, the one more powerful than all the other cherubs, more powerful than all the other angels, if he actually engaged in a rebellion and persuaded one-third of the angels to join him and thought that he could dethrone the king of the universe and sought to do it in the king's abode. I mean, doesn't that raise the question, does the king really have the power that he claims that he has? Does the king really have the authority, king in all caps, really have the authority, the sovereignty that he claims that he had with the angelic realm? And so it raises a question. 
does he really have the right to rule? And so what we see, what we've seen so far in the Davidic covenant is that God created one of the reasons that God created humanity and that God created this realm a new creature, a new realm, is to resolve the question that was raised by Lucifer's rebellion in eternity past, does God really have the right to rule? We saw that God immediately showed that he had the right to rule because he judged the devil immediately. And a third of the angels, that's why Jesus says that the eternal fire, that's the phrase he uses, the eternal fire has already been prepared for the devil and his angels. So there was immediate judgment which exhibited God's right to rule immediately, but then he does the thing that is unexpected. God is full of surprises, right? He delays the judgment. The fire's there, waiting for them. The end is determined, but then he allows the war to go on. He allows the the war to rage on, on planet Earth, being fought by a new creature, humanity. Knowing that the end is predetermined, knowing that the end is certain, because the fire has already been created, the judgment has already been issued, but he delays the judgment so that he can exhibit to the angels his right to rule. And he does it in his great sense of humor through us, through human beings, lower than angels, knowing that the first Adam would sin, would rebel, would tender... excuse me, would tender, would surrender the right to rule to the devil. And then God, in his great humility, would come to undo what the first Adam did. And he would come as a regal representative of God, as a royal representative of God. This is all what's packed into Genesis 3.15 and what we are seeing in the Davidic Covenant We've seen just some of this so far by way of introduction in the last two messages. Following the pattern of the devil, the first Adam said, no, no, God does not have the right to rule. That was his testimony. God does not have the right to rule. I have the right to rule independent of God. I mean, that's what Adam did when he sinned. And so he followed the pattern of The devil, the same pattern that the devil established in eternity past. It is Abraham's seed who undoes the first Adam's rebellion. The seed of the woman comes to reign as God intended humanity to do. This is why God promised a kingly line. We've seen the kingly line through Abraham. God promises it. Then he promises it through Abraham's son, Isaac. Then he promises it through Abraham's grandson, Jacob, then he promises it through Abraham's great-grandson, Judah. Genesis 49, verse 10. With that refresher, with that refresher about the Davidic covenant, let's get to our passage. Let's start with Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 3, refers to the Davidic covenant. There, God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. The word seed is very important in the scripture. It's the Hebrew word serah. The same word from Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman. The serah of the woman. Genesis 3.15. Now here in Psalm 89, we see God speaking of David's seed forever. How God will establish David's seed forever and build up your throne 
to all generations. Verse 28 of Psalm 89 reads like this, where God is still speaking to David. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever. Who's the him? It's David and David's seed. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Really, this is David that God is speaking of. And here we see that the covenant is eternal. Right? You see that with the language there, forever. I will keep for him forever. His, so I will establish his descendants forever. If something is eternal, then that means it is unconditional. When God says this covenant, that's the word he uses, covenant, berit, when God says this covenant is eternal, that means it can't be conditioned on something. This covenant is not dependent on the obedience of David and David's descendants. Because to be sure, as you read the Hebrew Bible, you see the failure, the disobedience of David and the disobedience of Solomon and the disobedience of Solomon's son and Solomon's grandson and Solomon's great-grandson. You see disobedience and disobedience and disobedience when you track down the line of the Davidic kings. I mean, there's obedience, and then there's disobedience. And then there's some obedience, and then there's a lot of disobedience. And then maybe there'll be a lot of obedience, and they waffle back and forth. What God is saying is that my covenant is forever. This covenant is not like the Mosaic covenant, which is conditional. This covenant is eternal, like the Abrahamic, and unconditional, like the Abrahamic. Because as we will see, this covenant is not dependent on the obedience of David's descendants. The more detailed description of the Davidic covenant is not found in Psalm 89. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Please turn there in your Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's a parallel passage to 2 Samuel 7 that's found in 1 Chronicles 17. But our focus is going to be here in 2 Samuel 7. Here we're going to see incredible theological promises. This chapter has amazing theological implications to it. It is rich with prophetic promises made to David, that God makes to David. And as we go through the chapter here, through the text, be on the lookout for three words. Three words. House, kingdom, and throne. The word house in the Hebrew is the word bait. So, David was from Beit Lahem. Beit Lahem. Beth Lahem. House of bread. House is the Hebrew word Beit. And sometimes it means a structure of sticks and bricks. And sometimes it means a dynasty. And that's how it's going to be used in our passage. It's going to be used as both. It's going to start out as a structure of sticks and bricks. And then the text is going to shift to a dynasty, a a lineage, as the text unfolds. Look at Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. It reads like this. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord gave him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king here is David, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. God had blessed David in many ways. He gave him all kinds of prosperity. He gave him magisterial prosperity in the sense that he made him 
a king with regal authority. He gave David military prosperity. He gave him victory over his enemies. He gave David monetary prosperity. He gave him great wealth, including a palace, a house of cedar. Now, in the Texas Hill Country, we think of a cedar and we think, yeah, that's a tree of, that's a nuisance tree. That's not how they think in, in this area of the Middle East. I mean, that's why Lebanon has on its flag a cedar, not a Texas Hill Country cedar, but a beautiful, majestic, tall cedar tree. tree. Those trees were very valuable. And so David has a palace not made of sheetrock walls, like our walls, but made of beautiful cedar. And David is a man after the Lord's own heart. So to him, it is unthinkable that he lives in this luxurious, elegant palace and God lives in a tent. Now David knows that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But the Shekinah, to use the Hebrew word that, 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 is, that is not found in the Bible, but was used by the Hebrews, Shekinah means that which dwells. And so the Shekinah dwells, remember, over the Ark of the Covenant. And that's why David refers to the Ark here. But the Ark of God, look at the end of verse 2, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. David's like, what? What? I live in a palace, and you live in a tent? The special presence of God, the special Shekinah of God lives in a tent? That will not do, is David's thinking. David wants to build an amazing, elegant, regal temple for God. And the context here is chapter 6. The, the, the ark has been at Kiriath Jearim for a century, for a hundred years. It hasn't been in Jerusalem. It's been at Kiriath Jearim for a hundred years. And God, well, David loves God so much. David take, took Jerusalem from the Jebusites. Jerusalem is now the capital of Israel. And so David says, we got to have the ark here we got to have it. We need the special presence of God among us. So J- David has the ark brought from Kiriath Jearim to Jerusalem. There's, a, there's some interesting things that happen in chapter 6, but that's chapter 6. So then you get to chapter 7. The ark's now in Jerusalem, and David says, we got to build a temple. I have to build a temple to house the ark of God so that the special presence of God, the Shekinah, of God can live in this beautiful temple that I would have the privilege, the honor, to spend a gajillion dollars building for my God. That's the context here. Keep reading in verse 3. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Nathan thinks, great idea. Oops, he forgot to do something. He forgot to ask God. There's an old Yiddish proverb. Man plans, God laughs. Man plans, God laughs. We've kind of changed that Yiddish proverb to be, you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. Nathan says, that's a great plan, David. But he forgot to consult God. Keep reading in verse 4. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? 
For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Can I paraphrase? God says to Nathan, you go tell David, if I want him to build me a house, I will tell him. If I want him to build me a temple, I will tell him. I don't want him to build me a house. God doesn't want this. David was a man of war and bloodshed. And God did not want a man like that to build his house of worship, to build the temple. God wanted a man of peace. God is primarily a God of peace and blessing. Primarily. The exception is warfare and judgment. Does God engage in warfare and judgment? Absolutely. No question about it. With the same intensity with which he blesses. No question. But that is the rarity of God. The norm of God. What he loves to do is to bless and to show grace and mercy. And it is the exception, the exception, 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 the rarity which, which he expresses himself as one who judges and one who engages in warfare. You see that rarity described, if you want to look at it at some point, at, in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21. It refers to, to the rarity of God's judgment. Does he do it? No question but it's rare. Instead of David building a house for God, God says, I'm going to build a house for you. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. Look at verse 8. Now, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, God is still instructing the prophet Nathan to speak to David. Thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. God begins the covenant with his solemn, serious warfare name. His military name. His name of authority. His name of sovereignty. Keep reading. I took you from the pasture, God says, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. You were a nobody. You were a nobody until I made you a somebody. That's what I do. That's what God does. You were a nobody until I made you a somebody. I made you king over Israel. I blessed you and I protected you from your enemies. As impressive as those things are, there's much more to come. The best is yet to come. This is what God is introducing to David here. Look at Verse 9 continues and it says, And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." God is saying, in the same way that I elevated you, David, and I protected you from your enemies, I will do the same for Israel. I will elevate Israel, and I will protect her from her enemies. She will be safely and securely planted in her land, the land of promise. And you say, well, wait a second. I thought the Davidic covenant was about 
the seed promise. Remember Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, blessing. And we started this message today saying that the, the, the Davidic covenant is about God's fulfillment of the seed part of the Abrahamic covenant. That's true. But land, seed, and blessing are interconnected. God's promises are interwoven. And so the way God will fulfill the land part of the Abrahamic covenant, which is to say the way he will securely, safely put his people in the land that he promised to them, a specific piece of real estate in the Middle East. The way he will do that is through the seed promise, is through the Davidic covenant, because God's promises are interconnected. One God, one Bible, 66 books, one Bible, somewhere around 40 authors, one Bible, one God, one theme. The meta narrative of history is creation, the fall, redemption, and God's coming kingdom. And so these, you see these things interconnected and interrelated. The way God accomplishes all of this is through David's house. Look at the end of verse 11. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Now the word house, the Hebrew word bait, has a different meaning. It doesn't mean sticks and bricks anymore. David said, I want to build you a structure of sticks and bricks, bait, house, a physical structure. God says, no, you're not going to do that. Instead, I will build you a house. And this house isn't a structure. This house is the way the Brits use the term house for their royal dynasty, the house of Windsor. Right? The, the royal dynasty that has, that has ruled Great Britain for over a thousand years, ruled in air quotes now with their parla- parliament, this is the way God is using house to mean a dynasty. This is the, the shift that we're seeing in the text. And a dynasty requires a descendant. A dynasty requires a descendant. Look at verse 12. When your days are complete... This is God still speaking to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, that's a nice way of saying you die, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. The word here for descendant, guess what Hebrew word it is? It's a Hebrew word we've already seen this morning. Serah, seed. I will raise up your seed, God says. Remember, God said to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God said in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And there would be enmity between the serpent's seed and the seed of the woman. Those who align themselves with the seed of the woman will see the seed of the serpent at the 1045 this morning. So what's happening is God is raising up a descendant. God says, I will raise up your seed after you, singular, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. The, the seed, singular, that is being referred to here, the descendant is a reference to Solomon, who is the second son of David and Bathsheba. Remember what happened to the first son, the first baby boy? He died shortly after being born. This is the second son. Solomon is the second son 
of David and Bathsheba because after David committed that terrible sin, he married Bathsheba. And from that marriage came their, their second son, Solomon. At the end of verse 12, we get the second word of the Davidic covenant. We've seen a house so far, but now we get another word. We get the word kingdom. First, a Davidic dynasty. Now we see a Davidic kingdom. And the Davidic kingdom is Israel. Leave your, leave your finger here in the Bible for a minute and turn over to 1 Chronicles 22. 1 Chron- Chronicles 22, verse 6. Excuse me, verse 7. 1 Chronicles 22. David said to Solomon, David said to Solomon, my son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give shalom, peace, and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, that's the temple, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, Solomon's kingdom, over Israel forever. Solomon's throne would last forever. Solomon's throne is David's throne. Again, we're seeing the eternal nature of the covenant. This doesn't mean that Solomon would sit on the throne forever. It means that the Davidic throne, the right to rule, the Davidic right to rule would be eternal. And the Davidic kingdom, Israel, would be eternal. Turn back to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. He, the he there is Solomon, shall build a house for my name. This is God still speaking. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So you're seeing parallel passages that are describing the same thing. Solomon would build the temple and God would establish Solomon's kingdom, which is David's kingdom, forever. Look at verse 14. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Remember, God removes Saul and replaces Saul with David. This is what God is referring to, what God is is reminding David about. But what's happening in this passage is we're getting an unconditional promise. We're seeing the unconditional nature of the Davidic covenant. Solomon and the later Davidic kings would sin. You see this language here in verse 14, would commit iniquity. It's only the last, let me say it differently, it's only the next, from our perspective, the next Davidic king, who is the last Davidic king. It's only the next, which is the last Davidic king, who will rule without iniquity. That's Jesus God says the Davidic kings, he's not referring to the final Davidic king, God says the Davidic kings will sin and I will discipline them for their sin. But despite their sin, my covenant will remain. Saul sinned and I removed his house, God says here. 
but I will not remove the house of David. Verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is an incredibly important verse. It has the full trifecta in it. House, kingdom, and throne. If you underline in your Bible, this is the perfect time to to do an underlining. Of those three words, house, kingdom, and throne, each will exist forever, is what this verse says. A thousand years later, an angel would use the same three words. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This is the angel Gabriel's announcement of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. When Luke comes to Mary, excuse me, when Luke records the angel coming to Mary, there's this announcement that God's messenger angel makes to young Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He, Mary's son, this is the angel speaking, Mary's son will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. If you're an underliner, underline throne. And he will reign over the house, underline house, of Jacob forever, meaning the dynasty of Israel, which is Davidic. And his kingdom, underline kingdom, will have no end. Mary was a descendant of David, as was Joseph. But remember, the virgin birth, Joseph's seed is not involved in the conception of Jesus. It is only Mary's seed, or to say it differently, it's the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 that is involved in the conception of Jesus. And of course, God the Holy Spirit made the seed of Mary, the seed of the woman, a, a, a pregnancy in Mary's womb. Jesus was David's descendant legally through Joseph, his adopted father, and biologically through Mary, his biological mother. Jesus is the last of the Davidic kings, though he has not reigned yet in that capacity. In Jesus, the covenant finds forever fulfillment. Don't miss the angel's words of eternality, of foreverness in this text. The angel says the house will be forever and his kingdom will have no end. It will be endless. We hear these words and I fear that they come in one ear and bonk out the other ear. These words of foreverness. It is difficult for our finite brains to comprehend forever. Think of a thousand years times a billion times a trillion times another gajillion. And that's not enough. You're still short by another gajillion. That's forever. The promise is that David's seed, a Davidic king, will sit on a Davidic throne over a Davidic kingdom forever and ever and ever. This is an incredible promise. That king is the last Adam who comes to undo the surrender that the first Adam did when he handed over the right to rule to the devil. This raises the question from a standpoint of prophecy, how will Jesus fulfill the words throne and kingdom? 
that the angel announces here. The angel's talking about Jesus, the baby, who's going to grow up as a man, and he died. He's not here. How will this be accomplished? He died, he was resurrected, and he ascended, and he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's not here. So this raises a question from a prophecy standpoint. How do we interpret these words, throne and kingdom? Do we interpret them literally or spiritually? There is significant disagreement among Christians about this. If you read the words throne and kingdom as spiritual, then you'd say that Jesus' Davidic throne is a heavenly throne on which he reigns today spiritually. On the Davidic throne in heaven spiritually. And if you read throne and kingdom spiritually, you'd say that Jesus' Davidic kingdom is the church, which today spiritually, you would say, if you were making this argument, you would say, I don't make the argument, but I'm laying out the argument. If you read throne and kingdom as spiritual, then you would say Jesus' Davidic kingdom is the church. And the church today spiritually receives the unfulfilled promises that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. You would say the church replaces Israel. There are many, 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 many promises that God made to Israel that have not been fulfilled yet. And so if you're taking a spiritual reading of the words kingdom and throne, then you have to somehow figure out how those promises get fulfilled. You have to spiritualize them. You have to spiritualize the throne, the Davidic throne of Jesus, because all Christians agree, especially with the words of Luke, of the angel, all Christians agree that Jesus is the Davidic heir. But where many Christians disagree is how the throne of David, how the kingdom of David, that everybody agrees belong to David, excuse me, belong to Jesus, how will those be fulfilled? And so if you take a spiritual view of throne and kingdom, then you have to spiritualize the throne and the kingdom. The throne is in heaven that we can't see, and the kingdom is the church, and the church replaces Israel. But if instead of a spiritual view, of a spiritual reading, you take a literal reading, of the word throne and the word kingdom, then you'd say that Jesus' Davidic throne is yet future because in his first advent, in his first coming, he did not physically reign. He came meek and gentle and was led to the slaughter. As a lamb is led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. That's not what a king does. A king comes in power and majesty. And authority. So you have to say, if you read it literally, throne and kingdom, literally, you have to say his reign is yet future, associated with his second coming. And you have to say that his throne, then, is a physical throne that will be touched and seen in a kingdom. You have to say that not only his throne is literal, but that his Davidic kingdom is literal and is yet future, an earthly kingdom that will be a new nation of Israel in a realm where Israel will directly receive, directly benefit from 
directly enjoy the promises that God made to Israel that are yet unfulfilled. I love the analogy that my pastor used to use, Bruce Bumgardner. If I promise this part of the room $100, everybody over here, I'm going to give you $100, each one of you. And then I come along and I give each one of you their $100. And you say, that part of the room says, what's the deal? I say, no, 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 no. I didn't renege on the deal. I still kept my word because, in a sense, we're all humans here. And I promised this group of humans $100. And y'all are humans too, so I gave the $100 to you. And so, in a sense... In kind of a, a, an allegorized, generalized, spiritualized way, I still fulfilled my promise. You call hogwash on that, you say, where's my hundred bucks? Because it was a literal promise that demands a literal fulfillment. And so, if we come in and say that these words, throne and kingdom, are somehow allegorized or spiritualized or figurative words then we are doing great damage to the text. I submit to you that there is but one way to read those two words, throne and kingdom, and it is literally. And if you refuse to read them literally, and you read them with this kind of allegorical, spiritualized, word, spiritualized way, you are doing significant damage to the text, and you are abandoning the plain meaning of the words, and instead, you're, you're, you're allegorizing words that, that have as their plain meaning a perfect sense. They make perfect sense. There's a principle that, that, that lawyers are required to, to, to follow when they interpret a law. The legislature goes out and passes a law, and you, the, the lawyer is presented the law. You, you, you see the legislature just passed some law. The Texas legislature is in session right now. We have a healthy distrust of government in Texas. So we don't let those boys meet but every other year for five months or so because they do enough damage when they're in session. But right now they're in session and they're, and they're passing laws. So when the session is over, at the end of May, they're going to be laws passed. So what a lawyer is going to do is when the new law is passed, he's going to look at it. And the principle that is required of lawyers is it's called the plain meeting, the plain reading of the, of, of the text or a plain reading, plain meaning of the text either way. You read the text of the new statute, and if the statute makes sense on its own face, you're done. You don't have to go and pull out the legislative history. You know that senator said blah, 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 or that, 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 that representative said, testified about blah, blah, blah. You don't have to do any of that. You look to the plain reading of the document of the statute, and if the words make sense on their own, you're done in your legal interpretation. Same thing for the Scripture. Same thing. Lawyers aren't that creative. We didn't come up with that principle. That's a principle that Scripture readers, that students of the, of, of the Word of God have, have been using for generations. And so here we have literal words, kingdom, throne, that have a literal meaning, kingdom, throne. And it really does kind of create just kind of a, a, a linguistic tension, doesn't it? If you say Jesus' Davidic throne and Jesus' Davidic kingdom, the minute you say Davidic, which all Christians agree with, and then you say his Davidic throne and Davidic kingdom 
well, let's just say Davidic kingdom, is the church. We say, well, uh, wait a second, Davidic is Jewish, and the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles, primarily Gentiles, even though it started as an exclusively Jewish faith, but it's primarily Gentiles in the church. So just by the, 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 those words, Jesus' Davidic kingdom, the church, you say, well, no, 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 there's a disconnect there. It doesn't fit the plain meaning of these words. David himself understood God's words as literal. And so in, King, in 1 Kings 1, chapter 1, verses 30 through 37, David understands the Davidic throne to be a literal throne in Jerusalem upon which Solomon will sit. So David, before he dies, has Solomon anointed the next king to sit on that throne that David's already been sitting on in the palace, in the throne room, in the house of cedar in Jerusalem. Before David dies, David has Solomon anointed to be the next king who will sit on that literal throne. David understood the word throne to be literal. He understood the word kingdom to be literal, and that's why he anointed his son to be the ruler, the king over the kingdom of Israel. David didn't think when God made this incredible promise about throne, kingdom, and house, David didn't think, ah, he's talking about the church. That's what he's talking about. How could he have? The church didn't exist. In fact, the church was a mystery, Paul says. Mystery meaning it was unknown. God concealed the reality that there would be a church. He concealed it from the Old Testament, from David, from Moses, from Isaiah, from Habakkuk, from Micah, from all of them. So, of course, David thought of these words as literal. Another argument for the literal reading of the covenant is that to date, the covenant has been fulfilled how? Somebody help me out here. You know the word? Literally. To date, the covenant has been fulfilled literally. We, we see partial fulfillment in the centuries following 2 Samuel 7. In 586 B.C., Davidic, or let's say through 586 B.C., David's on the throne 1,000-ish. So from 1,000 B.C. to 586 B.C., Davidic descendants sat on a Davidic throne and ruled over a Davidic kingdom. The Davidic house, the Davidic throne, the Davidic kingdom, literally. Then in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar removed the last of the Davidic kings, Zedekiah. If to date the covenant has been fulfilled literally, then what basis do we have to conclude that the covenant will now be fulfilled allegorically in some kind of generalized, spiritualized way? The answer is none. None. No, we do not have a basis. We have zero basis to now transform a covenant that was fulfilled literally, literally for centuries to now transform the fulfillment into something that is allegorized. By the way, the covenant does not require that a Davidic king sit on the throne continuously. Let me say that again. The Davidic covenant does not require that a Davidic king sit on the throne continuously. For the last 2,600 years, there has not been a Davidic king on the Davidic throne ruling over the Davidic kingdom, 
Israel. Since Zedekiah, we have been in the times of the Gentiles, to use Jesus' Jesus's phrase from the Gospel of Luke. The times of the Gentiles are where God disciplines Israel through Gentiles. There is no Davidic king sitting on the throne in Israel today. The times of the Gentiles will be completed when the next, from our perspective, which is the last of the Davidic kings, comes to sit on the Davidic throne to rule over the Davidic kingdom. The covenant assumes a time period where there will be no Davidic king. The covenant assumes a time period where there will be no Davidic king sitting on a Davidic throne. At the beginning of our message this morning, we saw Psalm 89, how it describes the covenant and the throne as eternal. Yet this same psalm contemplates a time period where there will be no Davidic king sitting on the throne. Psalm 89, verse 38 reads like this, But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed, against the Davidic king. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. This is the description of God, how God is dealing with the Davidic king. Verse 43, You also turn back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. The Davidic king, the the, the Davidic covenant does not require that a Davidic king be on the throne continuously. Because, 2 Samuel 7, God says, I will discipline the king. I will discipline the Davidic king through the rod because of his iniquity, to use the word of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. And part of that discipline is that there will be zero Davidic king for an extended period of time. The covenant does not require a Davidic king to sit on the throne continuously. Instead, it requires preservation of the Davidic line. Dwight Pentecost puts it like this. The only necessary feature is that the lineage cannot be lost, not that the throne be occupied continuously. Close quote. I'll close this morning with a well-known passage, a passage that we often forget is a Davidic covenant passage. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For a child will be born to us. Who's the us? It's not the church. It's Israel. For a child will be born to us, Israel. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace, or of peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness, with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. I feel like we've seen these words before. Right? You see all three elements of the Davidic covenant here. You see house or dynasty in the sense that the child is a de- descendant of David. He will sit on the throne of David. You see the word throne. This child will have a government the throne of David. 
He will have the right to rule that was promised to David. He will have a kingdom. It says the child will reign over David's kingdom, which is Israel. These are not invisible words. These are, these are not concepts of, that, are, that, that are things that are invisible. These are visible, literal concepts. A throne, a kingdom, and a lineage. These are not allegorical words. They're literal words that we celebrate every Christmas. Every Christmas, we celebrate the Davidic covenant, even though we perhaps don't know we're doing it. Isaiah 9 assumes a literal fulfillment of the covenant by a future Davidic king ruling over a future Israel that will exist even into eternity. Human history, as we know it, will end in a meaningful way, not with a thud. I describe a thud, this idea that Jesus is going to come back and say, It's over. It's over. The great white throne judgment for unbelievers cast in like a fire. We're done. I describe that as a thud. No, 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 no. History is going to end in a meaningful way where the last Adam is going to reign like the first Adam was to do on this planet. And he's going to reign like, he's going to reign in righteousness and justice, like the first Adam was to do. He's going to reign as God's image bearer. That's why the New Testament is full of this word image. Christ is the invisible image, excuse me, is the visible image of the invisible God. We're to be conformed to the image of Christ. Image, image, image. We're made in His image. Huge word. And so human history, as we know it, will end in a meaningful, beautiful way where the last Adam comes to reign the way the first Adam reigned. And he displays it. One of the many things you have to love about God is he says, let me show you. Let me show you. Don't just trust me. He does call us to trust him. But he says, let me show you why you are to trust me. And so the last 1,000 years of human history is the Davidic king par excellence above all other Davidic kings showing how humanity was supposed to rule and reclaiming from the devil that which the first Adam surrendered in his sin. Now, if there's anybody here today with us this morning who hasn't accepted Christ, who is here without hope, without Christ, and without eternal life, we want you to know that God loves you. We want you to know that you are the enemy of God because we're all born that way. We're all born the enemies of God. Rebels by nature, sentenced to hell, the same place where the devil will spend all of eternity. That is our destiny if we have rejected Christ. And we come into this world as rebels by nature, not in a cool way, not in a way that God says, oh, that's neat, but in a way that is offensive to a holy, righteous God. And so God condemns us to the same location that the devil will spend all of eternity That's how we all are. We're the enemies of God, rebels by nature, sentenced to the eternal lake of fire before we come to Christ. And it is only if we trust in Christ, faith alone in Christ alone, if we we say in, 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 in our thoughts, in our prayers to God, however you want to do it, I trust in Christ. I trust that He is the forgiveness of my sins. I trust that He provides forgiveness of my sins. I trust that He provides access to God only through Him. I trust He is the one who paid for my sins. 
who was buried and raised on the third day. I trust that he is my way to heaven. No other way to heaven. It is only if you trust that way. You can do it in the privacy of your own thoughts. It is only if you do that that you become the son of God, the child of God, the daughter of God. And you get off the death train. He plucks you off the death train, which is where you are speeding towards if you have not accepted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. I'm available afterward if anybody wants to visit about that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you because you are an awesome God. We praise you because you are a God who loves us. We praise you because you are a God who destroys his enemies with fierce, fierce wrath. We fear you because you are a God of immeasurable power. And we love you. We love you because of what you have done for us through the last Adam. That you have given us access to you by simply trusting in Jesus. That you give us security in heaven as our destiny by simply trusting in him, in Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins. We praise you for all of that. And we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.